So, recall that chapter 2 begins with the Apostle Paul admonishing the Philippians to same-mindedness and unity. And so Paul gives them a lesson in humility and selflessness by teaching them about the humility and sacrifice of Christ Jesus. Paul then encourages them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling because God was at work in them. They were to take their Christian walk seriously and be diligent in their obedience to God and the outworking of their faith. So now that admonition continues in the portion of the text that we're dealing with tonight. Paul wants the Philippian believers to live their lives in such a way so as to be blameless and innocent before God. So that when all is said and done, he, that is Paul, can be proud that his life was spent working towards their upbringing in the faith. Even if this work would lead him to his death, Paul wants the Philippians to live blameless lives so that he can be glad and rejoice with them over their salvation. And likewise, they can be glad and rejoice with him. So the main idea tonight revolves around this idea of living blamelessly before God. We're going to see what that looks like in the context of chapter 2, and we'll examine the motivation Paul gives to the Philippians to further encourage them towards blameless living. So starting at verse 14, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So Paul's intent here is pretty clear. He wants the Philippians to be blameless before God. Now, of course, all of us should want to be blameless before God in every area of our lives. But Paul is getting at something specific here. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. In other words, in order to be blemishless, blameless, and innocent before God, you must not grumble or dispute. Now, staying away from grumbling or disputing doesn't encompass the whole of living blamelessly before God. But nevertheless, Paul is being specific about it here. So, in this text, he's focusing on a specific sin. When he writes about staying clear of grumbling or disputing, he's focusing on the specific attitude of ungratefulness or ingratitude that causes the grumbling or disputing. Now, this is important because the Philippian believers had much to be grateful for. Paul has been reminding them of that fact since the start of his letter, even from chapter 1. They had the special care and attention of one of Christ's chief ministers and the Apostle Paul. Having him be the one to deliver the good news about Christ to them personally. Having him stay with them for a time. They also got to partner with him in the gospel, as we learn in chapter 1. They were loved by Paul so much that he even determined to hope to postpone dying and going to be with Jesus so that he could visit them again. Moreover, they were reminded of the humility and sacrifice of Christ in service to them. How Christ had begun a good work in them and how he would complete it. That even as they strive to work out and live out their Christian faith, God was at work in them. So we see then that the Philippians ought to have been satisfied because of what Christ had done for them and what he was currently doing for them. We see that they had much to be grateful for. So when Paul tells them to steer clear of grumbling and disputing, 
He is doing so within the context of them having much to be satisfied and at peace about. Furthermore, all believers throughout history, not just the Philippians, but all believers, in, in a general sense, have had much to be grateful for. We have had every reason to be satisfied and at peace. Think about it. Jesus Christ has paid our debt and redeemed us from sin. Something that we could never hope to do on our own. And even though we still struggle with our remaining corruption and our spirit wars with our flesh, we have a helper in the Holy Spirit himself. He works in us daily to conform us into the image of Christ. So what reason do we have to grumble or complain? What reason is there for us to dispute and quarrel as though we were robbed and abused? Far from being robbed and abused, we have been given riches far beyond comprehension that we did not even deserve. We didn't earn them. So the fact of the matter is that we have been, are now, and will be cared for by the God of all creation himself. No matter what happens in this life, our destiny is to be at rest with Jesus for eternity. So what cause do you have for grumbling or disputing? The scriptures tell us that even when we face trials and troubles of various kinds, we ought to rejoice. Because even in those circumstances, God is working out the situation for our benefit. Even as we learned previously in Paul's letter, our suffering is producing reward for us later on. So my point is, the love and care of God makes it absolutely unacceptable for the believer to grumble or dispute. Think about this. Do you know whom we should be reminded of when we hear about the people of God grumbling and disputing despite his care and generosity? The people of Israel. That's correct. The people of Israel saw the hand of God work terrifying judgments on the Egyptians. They saw it with their own two eyes. They saw the Red Sea part and walked across to the other side on dry ground with a wall of water on one side and a wall of water on the other. They saw the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night as the Lord led them to the promised land. They tasted the sweetness of water that had previously poisoned them and they drank from the rocks that ate bread and ate bread from heaven itself. And after all of this, how did they respond? They grumbled and disputed. Numbers 11 tells us that after all this care and provision, the people complained loudly, saying, and I quote, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, melons, the leeks, onions, garlic. But now our strength is dried up. And we have nothing but this manna to look at. Can you believe the the ingratitude, the level of just ungratefulness that these people have shown. These people used to be harshly oppressed as slaves in Egypt. And now that they're free, they complain because they don't get to eat the same things that they used to eat. That's silly. Just a few chapters after, uh, when they heard a negative report about the promised land, they even rebel against Moses and plan to go back to Egypt, to go back to slavery. 
They would rather be slaves than be grateful to God. I hope we can see just how sinful this is. How sinful it is to disregard the kindness and mercy of God. As if it were owed to you. As if you could treat it like it was nothing. But such is the norm in this world. As the text we're dealing with tonight says, we live amongst a twisted and crooked generation. It's one that's constantly grumbling and disputing. They reject God and his provision and they seek to be satisfied in things. And even when they experience good, common graces, it's never enough. They always want more. They're never satisfied. Well, Paul says that we, the people of God, must be different. Paul says, be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a twisted, rather a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We must be so different from the grumbling, disputing world that it's like night and day, dark and light. Light and darkness are complete opposites. There's stark contrast between the two. When the world rejects the care of God, we embrace it. When the world grumbles and complains, we say, Oh God, you are my portion, and in you I find satisfaction. And when the world disputes and wars and rebels because of its own selfish desires, we say, Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Glorify your name. When the world fights and rebels to take what it wants, we pray and we ask God to provide. And we accept his answer, knowing that whether it's a yes, a no, or a not yet, we already have all that we need in him. Completely different responses. This is how the people of God should be. Satisfied and at peace because of what God has done. Blameless before God with regards to where we have placed our faith or provision and where we find our ultimate satisfaction. Now, before we move on, let's examine this idea of being lights in the world a little more. We've seen how shining as lights in the world displays our differences from the people of the world. But there's more to it. In addition to showing off the contrast between the godly and the ungodly, the light that we shine performs another function. Lights provide direction. Lights serve as beacons pointing the way to safety. It's like a lighthouse on a pitch black night. They guide men's souls to the safety that is Christ. God has been pleased to use us believers, their preaching of the gospel, their witness to the person and work of Christ their blameless lives, to bring the message of the gospel to unbelievers. So what this means is that for men and women who are lost in the darkness of sin, we believers are like bright, flashing lights sending the message, come to Christ. There's forgiveness in Christ. Repent and be saved. Come to Christ. The fact that we are lights in the world serves an important evangelistic purpose as God uses us to tell others of his mercy and warn them of his coming judgment. So recognize then that the brightness with which you shine is very important. Remember that Jesus said, you 
are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I want you to ask yourself, do you think that the way in which you personally live your life is of such a bright and brilliant quality that the unbelievers around you would say, ah, his God must be an awesome God, or her God must be an awesome God. Ask yourself, is the brightness of your Christian walk such that the sinner can see Christ in you? If you were a lighthouse, would your light be bright enough to point lost people to safety? Can people see the saving, transforming work of Christ when they look at your life? Day by day, we need to make it our goal to be able to answer yes to each of these questions. But having said all this, we know that it isn't easy to live blamelessly among this twisted and crooked generation. It isn't easy to shine as lights when this rebellious and grumbling world is so hostile towards God. When we endeavor to live a life that is pleasing to God, trusting Him and obeying Him, we will make ourselves targets for, at best, mockery, and at worst, physical harm. It's like walking through a dark valley full of ravenous, ravenous wolves. Common sense that would dictate that in such a situation, you should keep a low profile. Don't go making too much noise. Don't attract attention to yourself. Just lay low. Try to get through this valley as quietly and as quickly as possible so that you can avoid the wolves. If possible, even blend in with the wolves. Blend in with the darkness. But Paul says, shine. Be light. Stand out with the way that you live. So we will attract the attention of the wolves. To varying degrees, we will be shamed and attacked for our faith. It can be a hard thing to do. But we cannot give in to the pressure to conform and blend into the darkness around us. As 1 Peter 2 teaches us, we are a people for God's own possession. That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The first Thessalonians 5 tells us plainly that we are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. You see, this is what scripture affirms about you if you are in Christ. It is in your very nature to be a light in the world. You've been called out of the darkness into the light. You are of the light, no longer of the darkness. It's in your very nature to be different from those who reject the mercy of God. To be different from those who grumble constantly and complain. It's in your nature to use the light you shine to bring glory to God. So that others may see and recognize that it is God who has caused you to shine so that he gets the glory. Recognizing who you are in Christ. How he has changed your very nature from being a child of darkness to a child of light. 
and how you have been called to be blameless before him should strengthen you to stand firm despite the darkness around you. This is why Paul tells us at the beginning of verse 16 to hold fast to the word of life. The Bible is where we learn of these powerful truths. So if you find yourself struggling to live blamelessly before God, grumbling and complaining about your life and your circumstances, struggling to shine brightly in the world, constantly being tempted to blend in, to be like them, you should ask yourself, have you been holding fast to the word of life? Have you been reading your Bible daily? Have you been reminding yourself of these great truths and seeking to come to a deeper and more full understanding of them? And are you finding yourself intimidated by the world and its darkness? Well, ask yourself, how tightly are you holding fast to the person and work of Christ Jesus? He is, after all, the Word become flesh. In him is life, and that life is the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's John 1. If we hold fast to Christ, we need not fear the darkness. We need not feel intimidated into blending in with the darkness around us. When we face the struggles that come with living blamelessly before God and shining as lights among this twisted and crooked generation, we must remember to hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to 1 John 1, which teaches us that if we walk in the light, as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with him, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Remember, it is the willing, loving sacrifice of Jesus, shedding his blood on the cross for us, that cleanses us from all sin. After all that I've said tonight about living blamelessly with regards to our conduct, recognize that ultimately the only way for you to be blameless before God is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. To put your faith in the shed blood of Christ. To accept him as Lord and Savior and trust in his righteousness as the basis for your acceptance before God. Belief in this fundamental truth that Christ shed his own blood to save sinners, that makes us righteous before God. It is by faith in the work of Christ that we stand blameless before him. Hold fast to this and the darkness will not be able to overcome you. Now, I said at the beginning that we were going to look at what blamelessness looked like in the context of the few verses, and we would also see how Paul motivated the Philippians. So we see that he tells them to live blamelessly and shine as lights in the world. And then from verse 16, we read, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, upon the, sac the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So, here Paul again appeals to their love for him. 
just as he had done at the beginning of the chapter when he told them to complete his joy by being united. Now Paul basically says to them, make me proud. Live in such a way that I will be able to look back on all the work that I've invested into you and say, it was worth it. Even if the missionary work that I've done for your benefit ends up costing me my life, I am glad to have done it if I can say that it was worth it. So it's clear to see how much Paul cared for the Philippians. When a man can say that he's willing to give his life if it means the well-being and growth of his loved ones, that's to say a lot. Remember that Jesus himself said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And this isn't just talking. You know. Let me remind you that Paul wrote these words as a prisoner in Rome. His future was uncertain. He didn't know whether he would be released or be executed. And he'd been jailed ultimately as a result of his missionary work. So we shouldn't take the fact that Paul can say these things lightly. He was actually, actually imminently facing death as a result of his preaching and teaching. You might ex expect him to be expressing regret and wishing he could take it all back to save his life. But no. Instead he says, I'm happy to do it. Only let it be worth it. In light of this, how do you think the Philippians should have responded? By obeying his words and living blamelessly before God and shining as lights in the world. The correct response from a believer to someone who has taught them and invested in them is to make them proud with their lives. Not wasting the work that was done in them. And brothers and sisters, this goes beyond just the pastors and the more mature fellow believers around us. This attitude of gratitude extends all the way to Christ himself. How can we talk about making all those who invested in us proud without ultimately talking about Christ Jesus? Who do you know that has done more for you? Who do you know that has sacrificed more for you? If Paul, a mere man, can appeal to his labors for the Philippians and charge them to live in such a way so as to make him proud, how much more can Christ Jesus appeal to his labors, to his life, to his death on the cross for our sake? How much more should we want to make our Savior proud? We should want to show the world that Christ did not labor and die in vain. By how we live our lives, we should be showing the world that we follow him. That he's not just some dead Jew 2,000 years ago. That he's relevant today. That he transformed us. We should be showing the world that Jesus is accomplishing his mission. And to this, this day is still building his church. The life and death of Christ was the most meaningful life and death of any person that there ever was. This is why we should be cut to the heart when we fail to do that which pleases God. It should be a heart-wrenching thing to think that we would abuse the sacrifice of Christ by not living holy and blameless lives, even though Christ died so that we would. 
So in light of this, what kind of men and women should we be? Grateful to God. Satisfied in God. And therefore, blameless before God with regards to how we live. Because that is how we honor God in light of all he has done for us. And even though it may be hard, even though we may face persecution and shaming from the unbelieving world, the end result is rejoicing. We rejoice in the faithful lives of the brothers and sisters around us as we encourage them. And they likewise rejoice in us. We rejoice because we know our labors in the faith are not in vain. And ultimately, we rejoice in Christ Jesus. He labored for us when he didn't have to. Coming down to us from heaven to live among us sinners. Being mocked and abused, he went willingly to the cross to be our perfect sacrifice. And he reconciled us to God through his blood. Indeed, we rejoice because after three days in the tomb, he rose to life. His labors being worth it and accomplishing all that he set out to do. Because of his labors, all who believe are clean and blameless before God, shining brightly in the world. So let us endeavor to make our Savior proud in light of all of his labors. Eager to hear on that last day, well done, my good and faithful servant.